Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, December 9th, 2022, the 688th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you'll be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple of days later on a variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by going to linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So yesterday we discussed the Brittany Griner situation a little bit, and the narrative has kind of fully blossomed in the meantime. So I want to take us back from the beginning all the way to the end, because what seems like a relatively pointless distraction story 
says a lot more about Joe Biden's relative power in the world than I think people are recognizing. So I want to kind of take you through my thinking on this. I talked about it a little bit this morning on Badlands Daily with John, but I want to really flesh this out because I think that this very strange story about a six foot seven partially black lesbian WNBA player who is almost definitely a man has quite a bit more meaning than what we are being told and shown by the mainstream media. All of the aspects of this story are available from mainstream sources. So I'm going to say a bunch of things. Each one of these facts individually is supported by stories in the mainstream, which is how I try to approach everything. When you hear me saying something and you're like, well, wait, I haven't heard that. Go ahead and look up that claim, right? I don't want you to just take my word for it. I'm getting this stuff from somewhere, which means you can get it from somewhere. My goal is not to take you through every single detail. It's to be able to understand this story in its fullness so that when you're in conversations about this stuff, you're able to say, you know what? Here's the actual meaning. Here's what this story means. It's not about uh, a victory for the LGBTQ community or the black community or the men in the WNBA community. So the Brittany Griner story has kind of uh, worked its way through the news cycle over and over and over again in the course of this past year. And we've heard a lot about Brittany Griner at various points, and then the story kind of goes away. The last time it really came around was in September. And then yesterday, out of nowhere, we hear that Brittany Griner is finally coming home to be reunited with her wife, and in the exchange, Russia is getting back an arms dealer named Victor Bao. Here's how CNN covered it yesterday morning. This is Don Lemon and Van Jones. And just listen to this. Listen to their voices. They're not particularly confident in anything they're saying. They're pretty much just making it all up as they go along. And they want to turn the story back to a race issue or to a gender issue the entire time. Listen to how they paint Brittany Griner. Listen to how they describe the illegitimate administration, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. It's pretty amazing. This is where they started the narrative yesterday. This is like their first crack at it. Very little information. They only know about the trade. This is what they're going to go with. If I, would be, I think I would be remiss if we did not mention also the importance this plays for the LGBTQ community. So as we've been talking about black women, this is big. So this is for the LGBTQ community. Glad releasing a statement, obviously, just I'm summarizing here that they're happy and it shows the, the um, struggles and the danger that members of the LGBT community face around the world. But when you look at what is happening with the LGBT community specifically here um, in the United States, um, what does this say? Does, what, does this bring attention to that and it shows us, hey, look, we're all Americans. Uh, Brittany Griner represents everything in this country. Uh, she's female, she's LGBTQ, she's black, and she's extraordinary. She's excellent. She's overcome. She's, a, she's an icon. She's done everything you can do in her sport and more, and yet she still wasn't safe. 
she was snatched off of a plane and treated like like trash. And we didn't let it stand. Uh, Americans came together. And I think that Biden uh, and Kamala Harris, uh, this is one of the things that they're going to be, I think, the most proud of. Uh, I think Americans can stand together on this one. Uh, but where we say that right now, when she comes off that plane, when she walks off that plane, when her wife hugs her, when that moment happens, that is going to be decade defining. People will remember that. And it should show us what we can do when we stand together. It can show us what we can do when we don't give up on people. We now, that is just preposterous. Van Jones is just emoting. Don Lemon basically sets him up and says, hey, Van Jones, do you want to emote? Do you want to say a bunch of very confidently woke things about how Brittany Griner is actually a woman or how she's black or how she's a lesbian? Would you like to emote on these things? And in doing so, let's really tell the people why this is one of the greatest accomplishments imaginable for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. This is something that they're really going to hang their hat on. This is the proudest moment of their administration so far. When she hugs her wife after getting off the plane, it's going to be decade defining. Now, that is madness, right? But they say the same things in all of these situations. Van Jones has definitely said all of the same things about Ketanji Brown Jackson, for instance. He's certainly said the same things about Nicole Hannah Jones, the woman who wrote the 1619 Project. He's probably said the same exact things about Breonna Taylor. He's probably said the same exact things about George Floyd, just, you know, flipping it around. It's not a woman this time. This is just how Van Jones describes things. Everything that they think is going to help them is the most important thing ever. It's the best example of justice the world has ever known. And everyone on the communist side of things needs to be really, really, really happy about this. So this is the start of their story yesterday. But after a few hours, the story began changing. This is from the New York Post in the afternoon yesterday. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman helped negotiate Brittany Griner's release. So the landmark prison swap that freed WNBA star Brittany Griner from a Russian gulag. Oh, yes, she was in a gulag. Thursday was brokered by none other than the notorious Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. It was revealed Thursday. The role of the crown prince, widely known as MBS, in the sensitive negotiations was outlined in a joint statement released by the foreign ministries of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. The success of mediation efforts was a reflection of the mutual and solid friendship between their two countries and the United States and the Russian Federation, the two countries wrote. The swap also highlighted the important role played by the leaderships of the two brotherly countries in promoting dialogue between all parties. A White House official declined to elaborate on Mohammed bin Salman's role in the Griner release, saying there are a number of governments and countries that throughout the horrific ordeal that Brittany has been through. We have asked to convey just how serious we are about resolving these cases once and for all, and I'll leave the details out of that. But I would say that we do engage with a wide range of countries so that the Russians hear from a wide range of sources about our commitment to resolving what a priority 
that is, again, I this is very choppy writing here. I hope that that conveyed the meaning. So the White House official will not elaborate on Ben Salman's role, but only says, well, yes, you know, there are always other countries involved. So they want to suggest a denial. They want to suggest that the statement from Saudi and UAE is not accurate in some way. It's not them who brokered the deal because we've been told, we were told throughout the morning that it was Joe Biden who brokered the deal. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Van Jones wants some credit for Kamala Harris. So he wants to go, he's going to go out there and get that credit. He's going to create that credit all on his own. They did it. It was such a great job. Sure, they traded a worthless WNBA player who kneels for the national anthem, doesn't even go out onto the floor of the games for the national anthem. They're going to trade that person for a world-class Russian arms dealer while we're sending billions and billions of dollars and dollars worth of arms to Ukraine, who we are told is currently in a war with Russia. And we're on Ukraine's side. That's why we're arming them and why we're funding their country. In fact, we're just supplying them money now to help them balance their budget. We're just giving them money like we own Ukraine. And basically, under the uh, you broke it, you bought it principle, we kind of do. So Joe Biden has traded this world-class arms dealer back to Russia while we are fighting Russia in a proxy war. And in return, we get a guy who plays women's basketball. And then we find out that Joe Biden didn't actually make the deal. In the White House press room yesterday, Peter Ducey asked Corinne Jean-Pierre about whether or not Joe Biden was going to get the Marine Paul Whelan out of Russia. And she said the administration is doing absolutely everything it can to return this Marine home. It turned out in the negotiations that his return was not an option. So we just took Griner back. And apparently she thought that that was protecting Joe Biden from the criticism about Paul Whelan and not making him obviously look like a totally incompetent negotiator. But then Ducey brings up the fact that Joe Biden says he will not be talking to Vladimir Putin about anything until Vladimir Putin is ready to find an end to the war, which basically means if Vladimir Putin decides he's just going to surrender and stop everything, then Joe Biden will talk to him, but not any time until then. Now, that is an impossible scenario. So Joe Biden will just never talk to Vladimir Putin. And that kind of makes sense, because why would Vladimir Putin be talking to Joe Biden? It should be abundantly clear at this point that world leaders do not respect Joe Biden in any way because they do not believe that Joe Biden is legitimate. They know for a fact that Joe Biden did not get 81 million real legal American votes. There is no world leader who actually believes Joe Biden won that election because they know how the election apparatus steals elections too. liberals and Biden supporters. And by the way, if you aren't talking about election fraud, if you don't understand that the 2020 election was stolen and that all our elections are stolen and you're not publicly saying that 
you are a Biden supporter. You are covering for the illegitimate president. So that includes what? 98% of conservative media. They're just Biden supporters and we shouldn't pretend otherwise. So Biden supporters believe that because the television tells them that, but there's absolutely no way that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin believe that they don't get their information from MSNBC. They're not getting their election news from Bill Hemmer. They're not following Ben Collins on Twitter to tell them who won elections. So Corinne Jean-Pierre, when she says that the administration is doing everything it can to get Paul Whelan back from Russia, apparently everything we can do does not include calling Vladimir Putin. So what could Joe Biden actually be doing? And the answer, of course, is nothing which might lead you to believe that Joe Biden didn't negotiate Brittany Griner's release either. And so when Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates come out with a statement saying that they facilitated the deal and Biden officials admit that there were other countries involved, but won't say who. And it's pretty clear that Joe Biden can't negotiate for the other guy and probably didn't negotiate for Griner. You really start understanding what's going on a little better. But let's take one slight tangent to this story from Wednesday. This is Fox News. Federal judge dismisses lawsuit against Saudi prince over Khashoggi killing. A lawsuit against Saudi crown prince Mohammed bin Salman regarding the assassination of U.S. journalist Jamal Khashoggi was dismissed by a federal judge on Tuesday. So two days before Mohammed bin Salman facilitates the prisoner trade of Brittany Griner for Victor Bout, a federal judge in the United States drops the lawsuit against the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, for the killing of the person they call a U.S. journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. He, Khashoggi, I guess, wrote some columns for the Washington Post, but he was an intelligence asset, and basically everyone knows this. The decision to throw out the lawsuit falls in line with the position of President Biden's administration, who have insisted that Ben Salman is legally immune from the charges. So it's not that he didn't do it. It's that they can't hold him accountable. And so that's why they've dropped it two days before he facilitates the Brittany Griner deal. I'm going to mess this name up, but Hatice Chengiz, Khashoggi's fiance and democracy for the Arab world now filed the failed lawsuit against Saudi officials, including the crown prince, over the killing of Khashoggi at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Khashoggi, an internationally known and respected journalist, was killed by Saudi officials October 2nd, 2018, after publicly criticizing the crown prince's harsh methods of silencing his rivals or critics. According to the Associated Press, the U.S. intelligence community concluded the crown prince gave the approval of Khashoggi's killing, despite the country's claim that he was not directly involved. So you might remember this story from a few years ago. The story was that Mohammed bin Salman ordered the capture of Jamal Khashoggi and then the killing of Khashoggi in a brutal dismemberment. And the media ran pretty hard in this story. And they used this story to say that Donald Trump should not form any sort of alliance with Mohammed bin Salman. 
That's what this story meant in American media. That was the hammer they were using to go after Donald Trump. If you've been awake throughout the Trump period and you've paid attention to how the media tries to take down Trump, they will always have these stories and try to tie Donald Trump to things he has absolutely no involvement in. So the story was always suspect from the beginning. There was no reason to believe the central narrative on Mohammed bin Salman or on Jamal Khashoggi. And it seems like the alliance built between Donald Trump and Mohammed bin Salman was fruitful. Donald Trump accomplished amazing things in the Middle East, including and especially the Abraham Accords and moving the embassy to Jerusalem. And you have to have good relationships to be able to do that. Now, why doesn't the regime like those moves and why didn't the media support those moves? We can see the narrative steps. We can see the motivation for the narrative steps. We know what they are trying to get through the process. But now that process is over and the U.S. federal judge dropped that lawsuit two days before MBS facilitates this deal. And so let's try to see this in full. We are told that we are getting Brittany Griner back. Finally, she has been so mistreated in this Russian prison. And there was nothing that Joe Biden could do to get her back until he finally did by trading a world class arms dealer to the country at war with Ukraine, who we are currently funding and arming. So right there. Just that alone is enough to say Joe Biden doesn't seem to be in control. Why in the world would someone in control who's looking out for America's interests do such a thing? This is obviously in direct opposition to what our stated goals in Ukraine are. And by our stated goals, I mean the stated goals of the administration. This is antithetical to those goals. But it's even worse than that because the deal was facilitated pretty much, it seems, without Joe Biden. Mohammed bin Salman made this deal happen, and he made this deal happen, it seems, on the precondition that that lawsuit would be dropped. Now, why would they drop that lawsuit after having told all the child-brained communists out there that Mohammed bin Salman is very evil? And Jamal Khashoggi is a precious, precious journalist. And that what Ben Salman did is simply unforgivable. Joe Biden was waffling on this a few months ago when he went over to Saudi Arabia and was treated basically as a chump by Mohammed bin Salman. He got a little fist bump, no red carpet, no nothing. Huge reception for Xi Jinping when he traveled to Saudi Arabia this week. But nothing for Joe Biden as he begs for oil and can't say anything, clearly can't come down on one side or another about Mohammed bin Salman's role in the death of Jamal Khashoggi. There's no reason to believe he had any role in Khashoggi's death. Keep in mind. So if you are the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and the regime has said that you are responsible for capturing and dismembering a journalist because they're trying to make you look bad on the world stage. Do you think that might be something that you're going to remember down the line? Seems that they have. He forced their hand to drop the lawsuit, got exactly what he wanted, 
and then facilitated this trade. And now Joe Biden is thoroughly embarrassed by this whole thing. It does not seem that Joe Biden had any role in this whatsoever. And now the crown prince of Saudi Arabia is basically taking Joe Biden by the back of his feeble little head and rubbing his nose in the dirt. So to me, this is pretty clear evidence that Joe Biden is not in control. In no sense is he a legitimate president. And the leaders of the sovereign nations of the world do not treat him as a president. They don't respect him. They know he's compromised in Ukraine and Russia and China. They weren't questioning whether or not the Hunter Biden laptop was real simply because Twitter censored it. These are the leaders of sovereign nations. They have their own intelligence organizations. They can figure things out without listening to CNN. And now Joe Biden has been absolutely punked. The global communist regime is not looking very strong. And I was thinking about the whole global communism thing yesterday and posted this up on Twitter. I think it's worth mentioning briefly. You know, I've gotten so much heat over the last few years for specifically talking about communists and saying global communism, because a lot of people just think that's a conspiracy theory. They can't understand the idea of a one world government, even though they've heard about it forever. And even though the people trying to implement a one world government have no qualms about saying it. We were talking about that WHO article yesterday. They want the global community to form a global accord. That's what it is. Global, one world, everybody doing the same thing. No borders. Eventually, everyone becomes the same. It actually eradicates culture. That's what happens when you take the multicultural approach and then apply corporate and popular culture on top of that, after you eradicate culture, you then just bring in the corporate and the popular culture, and then everyone's the same. You can't have sovereign individuals without sovereign nations. So I said, if you don't think this is global communism, then please list for me the leaders around the world who are not Marxists. Now, most people know little or nothing about geopolitics. They don't know about world leaders from other countries. But if you do know about that, then there is a relatively short list of world leaders who are not Marxist. You won't find many of them in South America. Obviously, you got Bolsonaro and that's about it. Mexico's leader is a socialist. Canada's prime minister, Justin Trudeau, who is absolutely Fidel Castro's son and nothing could be more obvious. Well, he's a dyed in the wool communist. We know we have socialists and communists across Europe. We know that the global order props up Marxists all over Africa, all over Southeast Asia. We've talked about Myanmar, how the illegitimate government there had to be deposed by their military. This isn't new stuff. Philippines, but who are the sovereign leaders? Who are the non-Marxists around the world? Well, you, like I said, you've got Bolsonaro, you've got Viktor Orban in Hungary, maybe Georgia Maloney in Italy. We'll see. She's a bit of a wild card right now. You've got Mohammed bin Salman. He's clearly not a Marxist. 
other leaders in the Middle East. And you got Vladimir Putin. And maybe there will be some others who we now think are socialists and might turn out to be people who actually do care about freedom. But let's take that very small set of non-Marxists. The media, the regime media, the global propaganda state media hates all of those leaders. Isn't that incredible? So almost all of the world's leaders are Marxists in some capacity, except for a very few nations. Those nations, by and large, are fairly powerful, relatively speaking. But there's only a few of them, and the media treats them all terribly. The global communist propaganda media never says a single good thing about those leaders, and they treat the Marxist leaders around the world as if they are all the ones advancing society forward. They can't wait to do more photo shoots and more long stories about COP26 or the G20 or the B20 or the World Economic Forum They love the major meetings of the global organizations and they love all the leaders that attend and embrace the global cause. So you've got Marxist leaders all around the world uniting to form a one world government and their propaganda media hates the sovereign leaders. Is it global communism now? Okay, what argument is there against that? Marxist leaders are forming a one world government and they have no hesitation to tell everybody about it all the time. And they identify as Marxists. I'm not mislabeling them. I'm not misidentifying them. I'm not red baiting. This is what they are. And they're proud of it. And they're uniting in a one world global government. That's global communism. What could ever possibly be clearer? If you can't think of more than a handful of world leaders who aren't embracing globalism and aren't self-identified Marxists, what in the world do you think we're dealing with? It's global communism. And of course, global communism is just global feudalism, but marketed as if this is all bottom up. It's all the people's choice. You see, the people all over the world want to put all the power in the hands of a very, very minute population of globalist rulers. That's what the people want. That's what they demand. Because what the people want is not the opportunity to live their life to the best of their ability and see where their talent and ambition can take them. What they want is for everybody to be forced into equality no matter what. What could be more obvious than that being what people really, really want? And hey, you think the feudalism thing is crazy? Well, you know what? The feudal rulers can change how much your money is worth. You're like, well, I have $1,000. And they're like, well, hey, you know what, guy? Your $1,000, it's only worth 500 now. Sorry, but I'm king. And everybody just calls it inflation and says, oh, yeah, that's fine. That's just what happens. Our money just starts being worth less. But it's not because we're ruled by a king. In fact, what we need to do to fix this problem is embrace more communism. Ultimately, let's just give all the experts all the power they need to make all the changes they could ever want to make. And you just got to trust that this inflation thing is going to go away. And then they're not going to change the value of our money anymore. 
And it can't be that. It's That's not why they would want to do it. I mean, sure, they are telling us that they want to implement a cashless central bank digital currency that they can track full time and shut off whenever they want. But but they would never just like go around changing the value of our money on purpose. Can't believe that. That's a conspiracy theory. It's the big lie. So in keeping with the theme of Joe Biden being an embarrassment on the global stage and the global communists quickly running out of power and influence, this is from Newsweek yesterday. Joe Biden prepares to sign off on $10 billion Taiwan security package. President Joe Biden is expected to sign off on an unprecedented $10 billion security assistance package for Taiwan this month as part of a must-pass bill to fund the Pentagon's operations next year. So now they're inserting Taiwan money in addition to the Ukraine money, in addition to the forming of a monopolistic media cartel, all into the National Defense Authorization Act. Provisions to bolster Taiwan's defense capacity and deter the ambitions of China are included in the compromised version of the NDAA for the fiscal year 2023 submitted by the House and Senate Armed Services Committees on Tuesday. Beijing says the island is part of Chinese territory, but Taipei rejects the sovereignty claims. And China is right here. Taiwan is part of China, and the U.S. policy recognizes that as well. The uneasy status quo across the Taiwan Strait has held for decades, but lawmakers in Washington and Taipei fear Xi Jinping, China's president, may be willing to risk a military adventure. Now, again, this is an exact narrative parallel to Russia, Ukraine. It's becoming clear as we advance through these stories that it may well be true, as many people, including myself, have speculated for a very long time, that Xi Jinping is going to go to Taiwan, much like Vladimir Putin went to Ukraine, with the intention of removing the elements of the corrupt and criminal transnational global communist regime from Taiwan. And that includes whatever elements are there of the evil twin faction of the United States, our deep state, our global communists. Under a section named the Taiwan Enhanced Resilience Act, the legislation authorizes $2 billion in grants and loans annually for Taiwan over the next five years. Funds the island can use to purchase defensive arms and services from the United States. So we're going to give them money so they can buy things from us. Makes sense. The assistance is contingent on Taipei increasing its own defense budget year on year. The Enhanced Resilience Act also authorizes a billion dollars a year to deliver U.S. military stockpiles to Taiwan in a crisis. And I wonder how they're going to get all that stuff there. Maybe they'll use Victor Bout. By the way, I forgot to mention this. Jack Posobiec was reporting earlier today. He was kind of referencing older reporting about how the Pentagon contracted Victor Bout $60 million of taxpayer money during the Iraq war to transport, quote unquote, supplies. Posobiec says Bout routinely worked as an asset for the U.S. government, even right up to a year before he was arrested. But the TV didn't tell you that, did it? Lawmakers in Taipei say 2023 to 2027 is a critical window in which Taiwan expects some of its modern military platforms to come online. It's also a make or break period for the island's slow transition to so-called asymmetric defense 
through the procurement of cheaper, highly mobile and lethal systems to counter the numerical advantage of China's forces. So basically, the evil twin global communist faction in the United States is going to be arming the evil twin global communist faction in Taiwan. And that is supposed to deter China from doing in Taiwan what Russia has done in Ukraine. And Joe Biden, of course, has absolutely no ability to stop any of it. Now, changing subjects without a segue. Kirsten Cinema, the Arizona senator, has left the Democrat Party. This is the Washington Post today. The politics of Kirsten Cinema's party switch. Three days ago, we wrote about a few reasons the Georgia Senate runoff and whether Democrats' majority would grow to 51-49 mattered, practically speaking. One of those reasons, the possibility of a party switch. That has already come to pass. Senator Kirsten Cinema announced in a series of interviews, a video and an op-ed Friday that she will re-register as an independent. She becomes the first senator to leave her party since Arlen Specter in 2009. Like Specter, Cinema looked set to face an arduous primary if she sought re-election with her former party, giving the maneuvering of Representative Ruben Gallego in Arizona to run against her. So the move makes some sense for her personally. But what about the political impact more broadly? The first thing to note is that it remains unclear whether Cinema will continue to caucus with Democrats as two other independents in the Senate do. When asked about this, Cinema spokesman Pablo Sierra Carmona said merely that she intends to maintain her committee assignments from the Democratic majority. She has never and will not attend caucus messaging or organizational meetings. That sounds like she would effectively caucus with the Democrats, that is, align with them for the purposes of organizing the Senate, but for some reason is avoiding saying so directly. Or maybe the Washington Post is just not interpreting things correctly. And she has said she's not sure whether her desk will remain on the Democratic side of the Senate. Asked by CNN's Jake Tapper whether her move would change the balance of power in the Senate, she responded, that's kind of a D.C. thing to worry about. This question doesn't immediately matter when it comes to whether Democrats will retain the Senate majority, but it does matter. They will have at least a 50 to 49 edge as long as Cinema doesn't caucus with the GOP. But if her plan is to leave the Democratic caucus, that would make Senator Raphael Warnock's win in Tuesday's runoff potentially hugely significant. And that might say something about why the regime decided to give that to Warnock. Of course, we'll never know what Cinema might have done if Warnock hadn't won. At that point, a party switch without caucusing with Democrats would have meant shifting the Senate majority to Republicans. That has happened before. Vermont Senator Jim Jeffords left the GOP to become an independent who caucused with the Democrats 21 years ago, flipping the Senate majority. Her calculus might have shifted in that scenario. However little Democrat support she'd get in a potential 2024 re-election bid, Imagine her trying to appeal to any of the Democrats who elected her in 2018 after having handed the Senate majority to the GOP. Indeed, the fact that Cinema waited to do this until after the Georgia runoff suggests she at least wanted to see how it shook out. It could also matter for committees. Democrats will have a majority regardless, but their composition is subject to negotiations at the start of the new Congress. 
And there's also what it could mean for potential vacancies in Congress over the next two years. If Cinema didn't caucus with the Democrats, it would mean that even one vacancy in the wrong place, rather than two, could feasibly hand Republicans the majority. Currently, 11 Democrat senators come from states with a GOP governor who could appoint a Republican replacement. Now, I said on John's show this morning that this particular paragraph is really interesting to me. And someone had pointed it out in the chat. And if you're listening, thank you for doing so. But it's odd that the Washington Post wants to put this in people's heads. This is narrative seating. This is not something that people would just naturally think about. They're talking about what would happen if Democrat senators, for whatever reason, don't finish out their terms. Now, Dianne Feinstein is certainly the person you would look to first. If someone was going to leave the Senate before their term ends, it's her. She's old. She's lost her mind. She definitely should not be in the Senate. But are they expecting vacancies? Are they expecting vacancies beyond Feinstein? Are they expecting a Democrat vacancy in a state with a Republican governor? And why would they be expecting that? Also, what if a senator just misses time for a while? It seems like they are previewing a potential Republican majority Senate, even though we've been told that's not happening. And this could certainly make the discussion about whether or not Mitch McConnell will remain the leader of the GOP all that much more interesting. So let's move on to the Twitter files. Last night was the official release of part two of the Twitter files. This time, the role of very responsible journalist was performed by Barry Weiss. Now, Barry Weiss is a bit of a ridiculous character. She is a dyed-in-the-wool communist who is slightly less woke than her peers, so she's able to brand herself as something of a moderate. You might remember this, but back in January, I wrote a substack about her appearance on Real Time with Bill Maher, where she discussed the COVID disaster and the liberal response to that. Now, again, this is January 2022, almost a full two years after COVID mitigation began in the United States and over two years since the COVID narrative began overseas. I mean, we are now over three years into the COVID period. And of course, we still have people double masking in their cars. Here's that segment, because I want you to understand who we're dealing with here. Done. With this question? No, I'm, I'm done with COVID. Oh, I'm done. It's yeah. like I, I went so hard on COVID. I, yeah, I remember. sprayed the Pringles cans that I bought at the grocery store, stripped my clothes off because I thought COVID would be on my clothes. Like, I did it all. I watched Tiger King. I got to the end of Spotify. Like, we all did it, right? And, no, no, we didn't all okay, do it. Well, well, here's the thing. A lot, no, of us, we didn't all a lot of us did do it. And then we were told, you get the vaccine. You get the vaccine and you get back to normal. And we haven't gotten back to normal. And it's ridiculous at this point. I know that so many of my liberal and progressive friends are with me on this. And they do not want to say it out loud because they are scared to be called anti-vax or to be called 
science denial or to be, you know, smeared as a trumper. I'm sorry, if you believe the science, you will look at the data that we did not have two years ago, and you will find out that cloth masks do not do anything. You will realize that you can show your vaccine passport at a restaurant and still be asymptomatic and carrying Omicron. And you will realize, most importantly, that this is going to be remembered by the younger generation as a catastrophic moral crime. The city of Flint, Michigan, which is 80%, I think, minority students, has just announced indefinite virtual schooling. In the past two years, we've seen among young girls a 51% increase in self-harm. People are killing themselves. They are anxious. They are depressed. They are lonely. That is why we need to end it more than any inconvenience that it's been to the rest of us. I think it's a a pandemic. It's it's like at this point, it's a pandemic of bureaucracy. It's a pandemic of bureaucracy. It's not it's not real anymore. So essentially, she is a run of the mill communist with the brain of a small child. And she is talking like she is addressing children. Her jokes were prepackaged and pre-written. She has gone through that before. And what she was primarily doing there was reaffirming the central narrative and saying that now that we have all this new information, we really do need to change these crazy things that we've been doing. Except we did have all that information two years ago. And Barry Weiss was one of the people saying that that information that we were putting out into the world was disinformation. It was conspiracy theory. And I don't recall Barry Weiss ever making a stand against censorship to protect those kinds of views. But she comes out and says this on Bill Maher to a liberal audience who all love to applaud themselves and their brand new thinking. Oh, yes, we agree. Maybe it's all gone too far by now. It has been two years of this nonsense. Maybe it's time we stop pretending all of these things that we know don't work actually do work. So not very brave, not much integrity, not much intelligence and virtually no independent thinking whatsoever. But that's who's been chosen to give us the new slogans about censorship. And I understand the argument. I made the argument on this podcast and elsewhere that potentially by using Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss to deliver all this information, perhaps this is what breaks through that uh, liberal bubble and actually convinces some of the child-brained communists that maybe all this stuff was just true and you got to stop pretending it wasn't. Because now everybody knows. And once they know that everybody knows something, that's when they stop saying it. Because they understand when they go out and they say these sorts of things, when they deny reality publicly and everybody around them already knows that what they're saying is wrong, they're going to embarrass themselves. They depend on putting themselves only in places and online spaces where their viewpoints are protected, where no one is going to say, hey, that's wrong. And everyone else knows that if this gets liberals to the point where they can no longer deny that Twitter and other social media platforms specifically and intentionally censor conservatives and interfere in our elections, then good. I guess that's productive in some way. But changing the minds of child brain communists who are still committed to all of that at this point just isn't that high a priority. 
the likelihood that they come around and use all of this for good is growing smaller by the day. So let's get into Barry Weiss's threat. A new Twitter files investigation reveals that teams of Twitter employees build blacklists, prevent disfavored tweets from trending, and actively limit the visibility of entire accounts or even trending topics, all in secret without informing users. Twitter once had a mission to, quote, give everyone the power to create and share ideas and information instantly without barriers, end quote. Along the way, barriers nevertheless were erected. Twitter was good at the beginning, and then it became bad. How did it become bad? Was it the same people who made it so good at the beginning? Take, for example, Stanford's Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who argued that COVID lockdowns would harm children. Twitter secretly placed him on a trends blacklist, which prevented his tweets from trending. Or consider the popular right-wing talk show host Dan Bongino, who at one point was slapped with a search blacklist, which means he doesn't appear in search. Kind of like me. Twitter set the account of a conservative activist, Charlie Kirk, to do not amplify. That means that his tweets are not eligible to take advantage of Twitter's algorithm the way tweets from someone like Barry Weiss might be. Twitter denied that it does such things. In 2018, Twitter's Vijay Gotti, then head of legal policy and trust, and Kayvon Bakepour, head of product, said, we do not shadow ban. They added, and we certainly don't shadow ban based on political viewpoints or ideology. They might as well have just said they did do all those things because that's not how you deny stuff. What many people call shadow banning, Twitter executives and employees call visibility filtering or VF. Multiple high level sources confirmed its meaning. Oh, so you don't shadow ban. You just use a visibility filter. Got it. Think about visibility filtering as being a way for us to suppress what people see to different levels. It's a very powerful tool. One senior Twitter employee told us, and of course it's a valuable tool. They are pushing out the propaganda narrative that they want to push out, and they are censoring anything that dissents with the narrative. That's what the tool was built for. Okay. That is a critical understanding here. This isn't some accident. These aren't rogue employees. They were built a certain set of tools to use to censor and control speech. And of course, they use those tools because that's what they built them for, right? Not a conspiracy theory. It's a system. You can see the parts of the system. You can see the goal of the system. You can see the execution and the process. There are no holes to be filled in. Legacy social media controlled the public conversation on purpose. VF refers to Twitter's control over user visibility. It used VF to block searches of individual users, to limit the scope of a particular tweet's discoverability, to block select users' posts from ever appearing on the trending page and from inclusion in hashtag searches, all without users' knowledge. We control visibility quite a bit. And we control the amplification of your content quite a bit. And normal people do not know how much we do. One Twitter engineer told us. Two additional Twitter employees confirmed. The group that decided whether to limit the reach of certain users was the Strategic Response Team, Global Escalation Team, or SRT, GET. 
It often handled up to 200 cases a day. But there existed a level beyond ticketing, beyond the rank and file moderators following the company's policy on paper. That is the site integrity policy, policy escalation support, known as SIPPES. The secret group included head of legal policy and trust, Vidyagati, and the global head of trust and safety, Yoel Roth, subsequent CEOs, Jack Dorsey and Parag Agrawal and others. This is where the biggest, most politically sensitive decisions got made. Think high follower account, controversial. Another Twitter employee told us for these, there would be no ticket or anything. So when it concerned bigger accounts that people would notice, it got escalated immediately up to people at the top levels of Twitter and specifically that censorship regime that we've been discussing over the past few weeks. One of the accounts that rose to this level of scrutiny was Libs of TikTok, an account that was on the trends blacklist and was designated as do not take action on user without consulting with SIP PES. So every single moderation discussion to be had about Libs of TikTok had to be immediately sent all the way up the chain to the people at the top levels of Twitter. The account, which Chaya Raychik began in November 2020 and now boasts over 1.4 million followers, was subjected to six suspensions in 2022 alone, Rychik says. Each time, Rychik was blocked from posting for as long as a week. Twitter repeatedly informed Rychik that she had been suspended for violating Twitter's policy against hateful conduct. But in an internal SIP PES memo from October 2022, after her seventh suspension, the committee acknowledged that LTT, that's libs of TikTok, has not directly engaged in behavior violative of the hateful conduct policy. And here's the hateful conduct policy. Site policy recommends placing libs of TikTok, 1.3 million followers, not verified, in a seven-day timeout at the account level, meaning not for a specific tweet, based on the account's continued pattern of indirectly violating Twitter's hateful conduct policy by tweeting content that either leads to or intends to incite harassment against individuals and institutions that support LGBTQ communities. At this time, site policy has not found explicitly violative tweets, which would result in a permanent suspension of the account. This type of enforcement action, repeated seven-day timeouts at the account level, will not lead to permanent suspension. However, should LTT engage in any other direct tweet level violations of any of the site's policies, we will move forward with permanent suspension. So they admit that she didn't actually violate the site's policies at all. And of course she didn't. What libs of TikTok does is find the most ridiculous, deranged, woke content posted by the wokes themselves and she simply reposts it so that everybody else can know what these insane people are doing. And when everybody else knows and says, hey, you people are absolutely insane, the insane people take that as an attack and Twitter treats it as an attack. They treat it as a harassment campaign that was incited by libs of TikTok. They actually say that she has a pattern of indirectly violating the hateful conduct policy. And so once again, it just seems like Twitter is making up their policies as they go along because they want to remove content that harms the central narrative. Libs of TikTok only reposts other people's content, 
content they put up themselves because they're proud of what they're doing. But the effect comes when everyone else sees it. You see, if other people realize what these deranged people are doing, that's when the pushback comes and they aren't okay with pushback. So this is their assessment on the same page. Since its most recent time out, while Libs of TikTok has not directly engaged in behavior violative of the hateful conduct policy, the user has continued targeting individuals, allies, and supporters of the LGBTQIA plus community for alleged misconduct. And it strikes me as weird that on the same page, they use both LGBTQ and LGBTQIA plus. They should really make a decision about who's included with the alphabet people. The committee justified her suspensions internally by claiming her posts encouraged online harassment of hospitals and medical providers by insinuating that, quote, gender affirming health care is equivalent to child abuse or grooming, end quote. And of course it is. Compare this to what happened when Rychik herself was doxxed on November 21st, 2022. A photo of her home with her address was posted in a tweet that has garnered more than 10,000 likes. When Rychik told Twitter that her address had been disseminated, she says Twitter support responded with this message. We reviewed the reported content and didn't find it to be in violation of the Twitter rules. No action was taken. The doxing tweet is still up. In internal Slack messages, Twitter employees spoke of using technicalities to restrict the visibility of tweets and subjects. Here's Yoel Roth, Twitter's then head of trust and safety in a direct message to a colleague in early 2021. He wrote, a lot of times SI, and I think that's safety integrity, has used technicality spam enforcements as a way to solve a problem created by safety under enforcing their policies, which again, isn't a problem per se, but it keeps us from addressing the root cause of the issue, which is that our safety policies need some attention. So they need to fix their policies to expand their censorship capabilities because it turns out that they're having to rely on all these workarounds that don't actually appear in Twitter's policy, which they always claim to be enforcing and not only enforcing, but enforcing evenly. Six days later, in a direct message with an employee on the health, misinformation, privacy, and identity research team, Roth requested more research to support expanding non-removal policy interventions like disabling engagements and deamplification and visibility filtering. This is what Roth says. One of the biggest areas I'd love research support on is Regarding non-removal policy interventions like disabling engagements and deamplification slash visibility filtering, the hypothesis underlying much of what we've implemented is that if exposure to, for example, misinformation directly causes harm, we should use remediations that reduce exposure and limiting the spread and virality of content is a good way to do that by just reducing prevalence overall. We got Jack on board with implementing this for civic integrity in the near term, but we're going to need to make a more robust case to get this into our repertoire of policy remediations, especially for other policy domains. So I'd love research's point of view on that. So they have their research team finding justifications for what Yoel Roth wants to do, which is implement more ways to tamp down speech 
that the policies themselves don't cover. They're just going to send a research team out. Hey, do a study, make up a bunch of numbers, find a bunch of really bad words that people said on Twitter, put it all together in a way that makes it look like people are really in danger. And we're going to use the danger that we have imagined for these other people that we don't know. And that's going to be the justification for further censorship. There's more to come on this story. And then Barry Weiss advertises her media organization and her allies, all of whom are leftists, who apparently are all sharing in the information dump that we are not yet privy to. This is being totally controlled and dominated by mainstream media figures at the behest of Elon Musk. Maybe there is a wonderful plan there. I am totally open to that possibility. But until I see that plan fully emerge, I've got to say a pretty terrible job is being done. This Barry Weiss tweet thread was not even as effective as the Matt Taibbi tweet thread, although maybe it's effective to the left. Maybe, maybe, right? Maybe that's the best I can say. Maybe it is effective for them. I cannot stand that all the time we have to reshape how we interpret reality based on whether or not we think it might change the minds of people who have not for three years amidst all these crises felt motivated to consider whether or not they might be wrong. I'm not content to simply say, okay, yeah, this way is fine because maybe it'll help those people. And I have to say in general about this Twitter drop, these Twitter files, these releases, this seems to be designed to track the central narrative almost exactly. And maybe that's a good thing. Again, maybe it's a good thing. But all of these characters involved in this release from Barry Weiss are people that the mainstream media has tracked. Dan Bongino, Charlie Kirk, and Libs of TikTok. These people go on Tucker Carlson. They are part of the central narrative. Bongino has his own show. And Charlie Kirk, of course, has Turning Point USA and his own shows as well. Tucker has reported on the libs of TikTok stuff almost exactly as written. He's had her on to tell these stories before. So this stuff is not new. If this is all for the normies, wonderful. If it's helping, wonderful. Totally open to all that. But this is not good enough and it's not happening on a fast enough timeline. And it's okay to say that. It doesn't mean I think that the world is crumbling because of their slowness. I just think that the public is ahead of this and the best way to make sure people stop paying attention is to only be releasing stuff that confirms things we already knew for the most part. And you can say that the left doesn't know these things, but they have an awareness of these things and they have an awareness that they are wrong a whole lot and that they don't really know anything. Now, they're not going to go out and admit it. They're going to pretend the exact opposite, but it doesn't change the underlying reality. People already have an awareness that all of this was happening. So in the aftermath of this, uh, Ian Miles Chong tweeted, so here's a question for Elon Musk and Barry Weiss. Were any political candidates, either in the U.S. or elsewhere, subject to shadow banning while they were running for office or seeking reelection, to which Elon Musk replied, yes. So it is going to be very interesting to see who those people are. Now, we were told that the second Twitter files drop 
would contain information from the post-election period. And I guess broadly interpreted, this is technically the post-election period, but this isn't what was implied the other day when that was first mentioned. It's possible that the strategies have shifted. Now, yesterday in the afternoon, Representative Diana Harshbarger tweeted this. Breaking, Adam Schiff is circulating a letter urging Facebook to maintain their ban of President Trump's account. The left is desperate for power and is willing to deploy CCP-style censorship tactics to silence any opposition. This is the real threat to democracy. So Donald Trump was suspended by Facebook, and that suspension was supposed to end in January 2023, But Adam Schiff is not okay with that. So he has been asking his colleagues in Congress to join him in signing this letter to Facebook's Nick Clegg. Here's the letter to Mr. Clegg. Following the 2022 midterm elections, we write to urge Meta to maintain its commitment to keeping dangerous and unfounded election denial content off its platform. To that end, we also urge Meta and its leadership to continue the suspension of former President Donald Trump's Facebook account beyond January and to carefully monitor and counter the spread of harmful election misinformation, including the big lie about the 2020 presidential election on Facebook. So Adam Schiff is still repeating the big lie himself. After each election cycle, social media platforms like Meta often alter or roll back certain misinformation policies because they are temporary and specific to the election season. Doing so in this current environment in which election disinformation continuously erodes trust in the integrity of the voting process would be a tragic mistake. Meta must commit to strong election misinformation policies year round as we are still witnessing falsehoods about voting and the prior elections spreading on your platform. Meta has previously taken concrete actions to fight falsehoods and misinformation regarding elections, such as Facebook's adding labels on election-related posts, promoting reliable information in 2020 and 2021, which was an important step in countering the proliferation of election misinformation on the platform. We also supported Meta's decision to suspend the Facebook account of former President Trump for, quote, maintaining an unfounded narrative of electoral fraud and persistent calls to action, end quote, therefore creating, quote, an environment where a serious risk of violence was possible, end quote, according to the Facebook Oversight Board. That risk persists and certainly has not diminished since the former president's removal. So again, all of this is premised on Donald Trump is lying about elections, therefore violence, except Donald Trump is telling the truth about elections and everyone who has bothered checking knows that. For Meta to credibly maintain a legitimate election integrity policy, it is essential that your company maintain its platform ban on former President Trump. We understand that the initial suspension of his account expires in January and that Meta will then make a decision regarding the future of his account. When initially suspending the account, Facebook's statement said, if we determine that there is still a serious risk to public safety, we will extend the restriction for a set period of time and continue to reevaluate until that risk has receded. Two years later, we can see unequivocally that Trump is still spreading the big lie and thus undermining our democracy. Indeed, he has expressed support for pardoning people involved in the January 6th attack on police. 
Should he ever get the chance? You got that? January 6th was an attack on police, even though police killed protesters and not the other way around. Trump has continued to post harmful election content on Truth Social that would likely violate Facebook's policies, and we have every reason to believe he would bring similar conspiratorial rhetoric back to Facebook if given the chance. On election day this year, Trump perpetrated false election narratives, including unfounded claims that, quote, the absentee ballot situation in Detroit is really bad. Protest, protest, protest. Similarly, he posted that, quote, Maricopa County in Arizona looks like a complete voter integrity disaster. Likewise, Detroit, of course, Pennsylvania and other places not being covered by fake news media. End quote. A later post claimed Arizona even said by the end of the week, they want more time to cheat. Carrie Lake must win. So Adam Schiff is horrified about the possibility of Donald Trump coming back on Facebook. What is he worried about? Donald Trump is just spreading all these false tales, right? Why are they so convincing to people? Is it because people already know they're true? And then when Donald Trump says them, they're like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I guess that is kind of true. What he's saying, what's going to happen? Will people start listening to Donald Trump? And what happens if that happens for Adam Schiff? These people want full control of the narrative, complete and total censorship at all times, because anything less than that at this point can only destroy their narratives. Look at what happened just yesterday with Brittany Griner. They came out thinking that the fake president had this big win for our woke values. Van Jones called it a decade defining moment. One of the proudest moments of the Biden Harris administration. And within mere hours, the story is completely destroyed right down to its very roots. Nothing remaining of that story because all it did was immediately boomerang and smack the fake president in his surgically reconstructed face. This is now a national embarrassment. It's a global embarrassment. The other leaders of the world are openly punking Joe Biden on the world stage. All you got to do is recognize it. They all know what they're doing. Mohammed bin Salman probably spent the day yesterday giggling. And without censorship, everybody is eventually going to realize those things. And without censorship, sooner or later, they're all going to see what we see. And they're all going to be like, oh, hey, maybe those conspiracy theorists actually knew what they were talking about. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range.
It's high noon! Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!